Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and they will be, I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbour and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. A special good morning to those who have served in our armed forces on this Memorial Day weekend. We thank you. Well, I'm excited to be here with you. I hope you're excited uh, on your Memorial Day weekend to be at church. I want to thank Pastor Gerald for giving me the opportunity to preach today, as well as the rest of the pastoral staff and elders for their support and their work behind the scenes to make the preaching schedule. Uh, I do, however, feel a bit out of place, like I kind of wandered into the wrong line or something and got past security and ended up between John Lambeth and Josh Caterer. Uh, some of you might be saying, is, is he supposed to be preaching today? <laughs> Checking your bulletin. No, I'm going to be here before you to uh, direct our attention to Hebrews 8 today. Uh, so let me lift up this time uh, with you in prayer. Well, Father God, these few moments we have are precious because we are closely examining your word to us. 
made possible because of Christ's intercession, Christ's sacrifice. And so we pray that your word and your son would be exalted this morning and that ripples of that would continue in our hearts and in our speech as we leave and go into our weeks. Father, would you captivate our attention and bring clarity as we exposit your word, as we're reminded by your great truth. Lord, have your way in these moments as we give you our attention. And we'll ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to touch briefly on last week's sermon because we're going to hit the ground running with the first verse of chapter 8. And so we'll need to review just a bit of what happened at the end of chapter 7. So Jesus is our eternal high priest. He is in the order of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. And on this basis, he is qualified because he has an indestructible life. Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained, cites the author, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, which makes him qualified to be the guarantee of a better covenant. And that's what we're going to look at today, a better covenant. And why is it better? Well, the new covenant that Jesus mediates is better than the old because it has better promises for us. Chapter 8 begins with a summary a summary statement of Christ's qualifications in chapter 7. Now, the question of chapter 7 could be posed this way. What would be better than a never-ending succession of priests who grow old and die? Answer, a priest who lives forever to make intercession. And that brings us to chapter 8, verse 1, which says, Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The writer leaves no room for doubt about Jesus' qualifications. So why is it important at this point that Jesus is qualified? Well, because the ministry that Jesus has received hinges on who he is. Since he is the new high priest, and since the sacrifice he offers is himself, as the writer will make even more clear in the next chapter. So since every high priest, it says, is appointed by the law to offer gifts and sacrifices, it was necessary for Jesus also to have something to offer, as it says in verse 3. But he offers his sacrifice in the heavenly tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. And all this launches the new covenant. Christ is the new high priest in the heavens and is in fact what the priestly system in the Old Testament pointed to. In fact, the whole system of atonement we read about in the Old Testament that system of forgiveness that required yearly sacrifices, is shown to have been only a sketch or a shadow of the superior heavenly system that Jesus begins with the new covenant. So look with me at verse 5. Most of your translations have something like, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. But this word we translate copy could also be thought of as an indicator of something that will appear later. And so we could also call this an outline or a sketch of something of a final product, which would fit with the parallel in the same verse where the author uses the example of Moses, who was instructed by God to erect the tabernacle according to the pattern shown him on the mountain. And just as the pattern precedes the structure, the sketch of the Old Testament sacrificial system has preceded the finished work of Jesus Christ, 
our great high priest. It'd be like comparing a pencil drawing in Michelangelo's sketchbook with his finished work on the Sistine Chapel. The sketches by themselves serve an important purpose, but they're a means, not the end of the artist's intent. They're one part of his overall plan. Even as detailed as they are, as beautiful as they are, they were never meant to be the final. And when you see the final, the finished work in all its majesty, you see just how incomplete the sketches were. The old covenant was instructive and purposeful, but it wasn't the final product. Jesus provides us with a new covenant that fills out what the old covenant lacked. That's why in verse 6 it says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old ministry as the covenant he mediates is better. In other words, Christ's ministry as high priest is supremely superior to that of the Levites, the Levitical priestly system. He mediates a better covenant. Now, to mediate is to solve a disagreement between two parties. And man's sin is a serious disagreement with God such that it breaks the relationship with him. So any new covenant will have to solve the problem of the broken relationship if it is to be better than the old one. So just how is the new covenant better? The new covenant that Jesus mediates is better because it has better promises. The new covenant is superior to the old covenant because it is based on better promises for us. So that's what we're going to look at, these promises. And there are three. The first promise of the new covenant is that Christ transforms people from the inside out. Christ, our great high priest, changes our very hearts and minds. And this is key because the chief problem with the old covenant was that it relied on external motivation. Now, any of you who are parents know the limits of external motivation. For instance, wisdom like clean your room, be kind to your sister, you're going to be late for school are only as effective as your child's desire and ability to respond to them in the right way. So the Old Covenant was a religion with instructions to be followed, but it did not ensure a desire and ability to obey. And we see this when God established the Old Covenant when he gave the law to his people at Mount Sinai. I'll give you a glimpse of that from Exodus 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen, God says, what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then in verse 8, all the people answered together, it says, and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, if you know just about anything about the Old Testament, you know that this is not really what happened. No. Soon there was a problem within the covenant. And the writer of Hebrews acknowledges this in Hebrews 8, verse 7. He writes, If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But God finds fault with the people for they did not continue in the covenant. The problem was not on God's end. 
God delivered his people from captivity. He gave them a reason to trust him. He gave them a detailed law, and they agreed to keep it. But in the end, they did not because they could not. They lacked the moral power to match their good intentions. Years ago, I sponsored a child through Compassion International. Okay, I was a bachelor, and, and I, I chose Uwasi Benisi in Rwanda. And, and I wrote her a letter, and she wrote me back, and it was great. But over time, I stopped writing because I got busy with other things. It kind of tapered off. Now, when I first heard about Compassion International and I saw the pictures on the table, I thought it was a wonderful thing. And I signed up with zeal, and I agreed to their terms, and I, and I wrote a few letters to my child. But then I failed once, twice, and then again and again. I failed to keep up the correspondence. I would read her letters and then forget to write her back. So I made a reoccurring reminder in Google Calendar. Once a month, write Uasi. But I kept putting it off or bypassing it until finally I don't even see the reminder anymore. It just floats at the top of the page and I don't even, it doesn't even register. Even when Compassion International sends me a letter to diplomatically address the problem, painting the picture for me, how in Uwasi's village, the mail comes, and some children get letters, and some children do not. And the children who do not ask and wonder why their sponsor parent doesn't write them, and we do our best to explain and care for them, but there's only so much we can do, dear sponsor. And I still don't write to her. What's wrong with me? Well, for starters, I lack the moral power. I lack the power to match my good intentions. The letters I get and the reminders I set are insufficient for me anyway, because they're external. Something needs to change inside. And Jeremiah understood this, the prophet Jeremiah. In chapter 13, verse 23 of Jeremiah, the prophet writes, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. And this is why God instituted a new covenant, to address man's deficiency in obedience. In Hebrews 8, verses 9 through 12, are a pretty much a direct quotation of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And this is the only Old Testament reference to a new covenant. It predicts the solution that God's people needed. Now look at Hebrews 8, verse 10. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. This is what the old covenant lacked an internal solution to the problem of man's disobedience. That crucial missing part needed to get God's law to change man's behavior. The provision of a moral law was limited in what it could do because it was an external prompt requiring our response. The law goes from the outside in when what was needed in man was a change from the inside out. We need God to get his word into our hearts and minds, which was actually the intent of the Old Covenant, uh, according to Deuteronomy chapter 30. In verse 11, God is imploring the Israelites to obey his voice, and this is what he says. 
For this commandment that I, will, uh, that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. But obedience didn't happen. They did not continue in God's covenant. They did not remain faithful as they promised. And so the Lord withdrew his care for them. He turned away from them because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness. Verse 9 in Hebrews 8 says, I showed no concern for them as a result, but he did not turn away from his people forever. He made a covenant specifically for unfaithful people. Now, because of a superior high priest and a better covenant, those who trust in Christ have this promise. God has made the necessary change to our inner nature to make us capable of obedience. Now, by the Holy Spirit, the requirements of the law are met with an instinctive response that comes from having a new nature. We have a prompting inside of us now to obey God because of the Spirit, not just some external cue that lives outside of us. And unlike the old covenant, the new covenant has not ended. Hebrews 8 concludes in verse 13 with a word about how the old covenant is becoming obsolete. It's going away because it has been replaced by the new covenant, and the new covenant is the very one we enjoy today as believers. Because the new covenant has not come to an end, and God through his spirit continues to write his law on our hearts. As you grow as a Christian, you grow in knowledge of his word and conviction of sin. He transforms us from the inside out because that's where our motivation comes from. He has not left obedience up to us alone. He knows our deficiency and has given us new desires and ability. So if you are trusting in Christ, you can trust that God is at work in you to bring about obedience, even in increasing measure. So what does obedience look like for you? Do you delight in doing what God has commanded? Is there satisfaction after obeying God, even the obedience that's particularly hard? This year, I taught some grade school kids how to draw a tree. As part of their art curriculum, we went to Austin Gardens, they took their sketchbooks, and the first thing I taught them was to create a margin on their blank sheet of paper and I said, treat this new, slightly smaller rectangle as your page and pretend that you can't go beyond it. That way you won't make an error in judgment and go off the whole page. The constraint was meant to serve as a way to provide accuracy. Then I gave them another rule. I said, start by blocking in the biggest, most basic shapes, like a rectangle for the tree trunk and a, a circle, you know, as far as the branches go. Get those two things right, and you'll save yourself a lot of grief in doing it over because you did it wrong, right? And most of the kids didn't take my suggestions. <laughs> Why? Is it because they didn't trust me or believe me when I said I went to art school? No, they didn't reject my wisdom as falsehood exactly, but it was just easier and more fun and immediate to make big passionate strokes going off the page. Well, obedience is a little like that. It's often not what's easiest, 
but it's doable and it's worth the effort. It brings a reward. It has a, a purpose. It, it actually brings more of God into your life because obedience tends to lead to more obedience, eventually establishing a pattern of pleasing God, an attitude of pleasing God, and with it, a heightened awareness of his will. You get into a groove of obedience and recognize when you're veering off that. Well, we live in a tension of a sinful existence in between God's recreation of our hearts at salvation and the future completion of his work when we are glorified. So it makes sense that we would feel the pull and the tension between our renewed attitudes and old impulses. So you might not always enjoy the difficulty of staying within the constraints of obedience to God, suppressing your pride or your baser desires. But when you put in the work of obedience, you feel the satisfaction of doing what is right in God's eyes and what is best for you. The new covenant promise of transformation inclines us toward obedience, and it propels our obedience. And there is a reward after accomplishing obedience, even if it's something painful like asking forgiveness from your 11-year-old. After you do what is humble and obedient, you receive the satisfaction of doing what honors God, and it resonates with you. How does obedience resonate with you? Do you rise to the challenge of obedience because you know the outcome? Because you know what's woven into the fabric of obeying God? Do you look forward to the reward, pleasing God? Or do you pick and choose where you obey according to your comfort level? Well, perhaps like some of you, I entered my adulthood being selective with obedience. I had a Christian upbringing, and so I grew up with the external cues of the Christian life. I was taught the Bible, and for the most part, I had a decent awareness of my biblical boundaries and my constraints. But as I grew into adulthood, those boundaries like obedience and fellowship with other believers became more negotiable and less important to me, such that in my 20s, there was very little trace of God's word in my life, very little trace of God's activity to set me apart. I obeyed when it was convenient. And I was Christian only as far as it was comfortable for me. I still knew that I should obey. I believed the Bible. And every now and then, I would read the Bible out of obligation, mostly, and occasionally go to church, but those things didn't end up affecting me much. Nothing really stuck, because my heart ultimately had different affections that an occasional glance at the Bible is not going to change. I mean, imagine doing something really, really labor-intensive and dirty, like digging out your backyard for like two days straight without showering, and then take a mint leaf and put it in your armpit as a way of freshening up. <laughs> it isn't enough. But around the time I turned 30, God did something amazing. He got a hold of my mind and my heart, and he put the things of the Lord inside them, and I became a new person. And he became my God, and I became his. The word of God went from being water droplets on an oily surface to being a rain shower on a giant sponge. Amen. I couldn't get enough of it. I was transformed. 
And no longer did anyone have to tell me to obey God. He had secured my devotion from the inside out. And I was not only a willing party to the covenant that God had made, I was grateful. And one of the interesting truths I noticed that comes from following Christ later in life is discovering that doing things however you want is not better than following Christ. Submitting to the constraints of obedience to God is counterintuitively and progressively wonderful. And it was God who did the transformative work that propelled me into learning that. God sent his law to instruct obedience, but he sends his spirit into our hearts to inspire obedience. That's the first promise. The new covenant is better than the old because Christ transforms people from the inside out. Here's the second promise. The second promise is that the knowledge of God becomes personally experienced and available to all. Knowledge of God becomes personally experienced and available to all. Knowing about God becomes knowing God personally. And this is related to the first promise because it comes from the inner transformation of the new covenant. Just as the Lord puts his laws into a person's heart and mind, he also intimately acquaints us with himself. And the result is loyalty and devotion. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, how is this different than the knowledge of God that the Israelites had? Because they had a unique knowledge of God that separated them from the neighboring nations that didn't know God. After all, God had revealed himself to them in a unique way. But in the Old Covenant, knowing God seems more connected with obedience and devotion to God than a consistent and personal relationship with God. We see this in Jeremiah 9, verse 3. Referring to God's people, the prophet writes, they bend their tongue like a bow, Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. And then three verses later, he writes, Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me. There is something of a distance in the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament. Like we would think of a king and his subjects. And God's pastoral care in the pictures of being a shepherd and a father and a nurturing mother that we see, those things notwithstanding, God is always mediated by priests and prophets and angels. There is a mediator that he appoints. And this creates a distance in obedience because without regular access to the law, without regular access to the law, Israel forgot God. We see that over and over again. And this is where the new covenant comes in. Because of Christ's sacrificial offering, once for all, he is a constant mediator. He has forever opened the access to God for us through him. So we don't need another mediator. We can know God constantly. And this is why the letter to the Hebrews opens up by saying that long ago God spoke by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, So the first promise makes us able and willing to obey, but personal knowledge of God familiarizes us with who God is. In the new covenant, we're not merely programmed like robots to carry out obedience directives. 
Our desire and ability to obey is wrapped up in knowing the goodness and trustworthiness of God. We need to know him, and God has made himself known through Christ. We need more than the instinct and ability to obey. We need to know the one we're obeying. And God gives us that knowledge in a personal and meaningful way because of Christ. Years ago, I knew about God when I used to read the Bible out of obligation. But only when I knew God personally did the information in the Bible come alive. Maybe that's been your experience. But when it did, I devoured it. I marveled over it. I wept over it. I delighted in it because I finally knew God. And I went to church to hear sermons and I went to Bible studies to learn the Bible because I knew God and because I loved the God I knew. But being taught complemented and worked with my personal understanding of God. I no longer needed someone to tell me about God externally. I knew him myself because of God's spirit. And my attitudes and affections were suddenly in alignment with him as a result of that personal knowledge. In fact, my relationship with God became more defined by my affection for him than my knowledge of him, which is helpful when you are frustrated by what you don't know. Your trust and affection for him will sustain you. That's what Christ does. He brings us into a relationship with God by serving as the mediator between us. And no longer is the knowledge of God limited to Israel. This point is probably apparent to you, but it has been extended to all peoples everywhere in the new covenant. Jesus is the mediator for any person who had come to the Father through him. We know God through Jesus and only through Jesus. He is the one high priest who has given us access to knowing God. And when you know God, you trust and obey him because your mind and your heart have been transformed. So maybe you're asking yourself if you have this knowledge of God. Perhaps you've been faithfully coming to church, but something's missing. But apart from what you learn about God from sermons, there isn't what you would call a personal knowledge of God in much of your life. Are your encounters with God always mediated by someone like a pastor or Bible study leader with no real sense of a personal relationship between God and you? Do you leave church only to feel a lack of personal engagement with God through the week? Well, God has spoken to us by his son and the New Testament is filled with the knowledge of Christ. And perhaps you've been neglecting this and need to begin reading there in earnest. For it is God's revelation to you and it is illuminated for you by his spirit to enter your heart and mind and transform you. And above all, Ask God in prayer for him to reveal himself through his word so that you would know him personally, so that he would be your God and you belonging to him. So the first promise is a transformation from the inside out. The second promise is a personal knowledge of God that is available to all. These two things work together to orient our hearts and minds toward God. Are you ready for the third promise? This is the third promise. God no longer remembers our sin. Verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities 
and I will remember their sins no more. It means he does not keep the sins of his covenant people in mind. This word we translate remember in this verse is the same word the writer of Hebrews uses in chapter 2 where he quotes Psalm 8, saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? God is mindful of man. He cares for us. And the most astounding way he cares for us is to forgive our sins and not keep them in mind. No more does he remember our disobedience. He remembers or is mindful of us in the ways that benefit us. When he looks at us, he does not have our sin in mind. Not if we have trusted in the covenant of Jesus Christ. So let me turn that around and ask it of you. When you consider God, do you have your sins in mind? I know I do. But God remembers our sins no more because he is merciful toward our iniquities. The psalmist writes, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Like a parent who knows that her child cannot operate at the same level as an adult, God knows our limitations. And his concern for us is continual because he keeps us continually in his covenant. One of the harsh realities of the old covenant was that there were certain sins for which there was no forgiveness, no atonement. For example, the penalty of murder and adultery was death. But with the new covenant, God makes no distinction between the sins that are atoned for by Christ, our high priest. He categorically wipes all our sins off our record because of the superior, once-for-all sacrifice of Christ's blood. Is that hard for you to believe? Because for most of us, we have certain sins that we just know we're going to commit again, probably very soon. And we wrestle with them. And we hate how frequently we commit them. The writer of Hebrews says that the Holy One doesn't keep them in mind. That's how much better the new covenant is. That's how much more excellent Christ is with this business of atonement. He wipes your record clean. Let me put it this way. Have you had a dream where something terrible happened to you? Or maybe you yourself did something terrible in the dream. And it was so realistic, despite being so shockingly scary or out of character for you. But then you woke up. And what a relief it was that it wasn't true. Because it means you didn't have to atone for any sins you committed. You didn't have to dread the consequences of your actions. And you didn't need to keep it in mind anymore. That's what God has done for you because of Christ. If you are trusting in Christ as your great high priest to make atonement for your sin, you've been changed from the inside out. You've been transformed. God has given you the desire and ability to obey him. Christ has established a new covenant with better promises because we were sinners in need of a new heart, a new mind, and forgiveness of sins. But maybe you're here today and you 
don't know the mercy of God personally or the forgiveness he offers to you in Christ. If that's you, I hope you'll come to the front after the service so we can talk some more. I know I or one of the other personal pastoral staff would be happy to meet you. And maybe some of you are wondering whether the promises of the new covenant are real in your life. Please don't leave without sharing your questions or concerns with us. We are here to walk alongside you. And for many of us, the message is to endure and refamiliarize ourselves with a promise that is just seems too good to be true. The new covenant means a merciful God has made himself known to us and has transformed us so that we would know him and obey him. And because of Christ, he will be our God and we will be his people forever. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, we come to you with gratitude for your son, our high priest, amazed that you would remember our sins no more despite our repeated failures throughout history. I pray that you would give us the faith to seize upon this truth and live accordingly, knowing that you have transformed us and bring about obedience that is pleasing to you and satisfying to us. And for those who perhaps stand just outside of embracing this truth, Lord, I pray that you would make it plain to them and lovingly woo them into the new covenant. And we will give you the glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.